when I was younger and uh, and trying to figure out how to play the guitar and how to play dead tunes and, and that sort of thing, it took me a while to realize that the secret to being able to play like the Grateful Dead, first of all, it helps to be Jerry Garcia and the rest of <laughs> <laughs> you want to play like the Grateful Dead, but to sound like the Dead, it's less a matter of studying what the Grateful Dead were doing and more a matter of going back to what they were listening to when they made the music that they made. So what makes the Grateful Dead sound like the Grateful Dead is all of that ancestral music, that bluegrass, that country, that folk, that Celtic music that they were all listening to and learning how to play and then bringing together and then reassembling and synthesizing into new music, which was the Grateful Dead's music. So this is important to Deadheads, not just because it's Jerry liked it, but it was an integral part of what Jerry ingested to then create the music that we all love so much. How about that for some incredible insight in the Grateful Dead sound? That is the voice of Starfinder Stanley. He is with the Owsley Stanley Foundation. And these cats are kind of usual suspects when it comes to the radio program. Official tapes. This is where we get into the official releases from the Grateful Dead. It is a radio program that airs on about 80 radio stations around the globe. And every so often we catch up with people like the Owsley Stanley Foundation. We interview them, talk about their latest projects. And then we post that interview over at the website, officialtapes.com. Just go on over to the soundboards page. We have grown up as deadheads, as you know, amateur archivists. That's the voice of Hawk, who you will also hear throughout the interview. We have grown up as deadheads, as you know, amateur archivists. And we are doing our role to keep the music preserved, to keep it alive, to keep the various torches lit. But at the end of the day, every taper is an archivist. The other voice you'll hear is Pete Bell. We called the series Bear Sonic Journals because Bear called his tapes Sonic Journals. They were his working to a journal of what did it sound like to be in the room that night. You're also going to hear an interview that Jerry Garcia did on the Irish roots of bluegrass on KSAN Radio in San Francisco, KSAN 1973. You're also going to hear uh, Patty Maloney's final interview from 2021 and these tracks you'll be able to hear on the uh, full release of the chieftains san francisco 1973 and 1976 uh, album called the fox hunt and starfinder stanley hawk along with pete bell they're going to discuss and talk about the uh, the legacy of the chieftains who they are why they're important also why they're important to grateful dead fans they're going to talk about the actual nights that took place in 1973 and 1976 and everything that you need to know about the fox hunt. So grab a pint and mind the dresser. Patty was the founder of the Chieftains, who's the prime mover of the Chieftains. First, Patty is a legend. Imagine being in the room with Duke Ellington. Imagine being in the room with, you know, any of the great composers that, will be taught for generations. Patty's in that discussion. Slips you into a reel, into yeah. a into a 12 eight. Yeah, yeah. And into, so it's played in, in uh, three or four different ry rhythms, yeah. you know. It's the same tune. Yes, yes. So this is something you can do. You can create a whole new 
you know, a whole new thing with, with uh, one tune. One the membership of the band was fluid. It changed over the years, but Patty was the constant. He composed to the songs. He was really an orchestra leader. He was a band leader. It's too easy for us in the U.S. to look at somebody like the Chieftain and say, oh, great Irish music in that category. It's the best. But no, you really have to look at it as we're all part of an interconnected world, uh, you know, sort of a biosphere of sound, right? And this is an, a tremendously important voice, not just in Ireland, but in the United States and in China and in South America and in Europe. Everywhere the Chieftains went, everybody loved their music. Patty's personal instrument was the Ulliam pipes. So these are an ancient Irish instrument. They're bagpipes. You don't perceive them as bagpipes so readily because he doesn't play a drone, or if he does, only minorly. So that's the, what annoys some people about Scottish bagpipes. Um, so it, it's a little bit closer to a whistle. Virtuoso. He was the national champion of these pipes uh, multiple years in a row, and he liked to play with the best of the best. And so if he was recruiting a fiddler, it was going to be the best fiddler in the country. If he was finding a harpist, it would be the best harpist. And he surrounded himself, like Duke Ellington did, with some of the best musicians in the world, and they stayed with him. Uh, like Duke Ellington's band did. So he was playing with Ireland's very, very best musicians drops but he was about more than the virtuosity it wasn't just about you know can we have the best guys out there he had a mission and he wanted to take irish music and to elevate it and then uh, you end off with the with the slip jig you know what i mean you know he was the composer and he was the band leader for sure there's no question about that but he maximized the tremendous talents of his bandmates and helped compose parts in the way that they came together. You know, from the, the 6 eight, like the jig, for instance, has 6 eight rhythm, uh, it has 9-8 um, rhythm, it has 12-8 rhythm. Well, he was doing something similar to what Duke Ellington did here. Duke Ellington took the vernacular. He said, these are the tunes people are playing in their homes and in the bars. These are the instruments people are playing. Sorry, off I go again. I used to drive for a ride cooler mad. But they're more than just bar music. And he said, can we synthesize that into a greater art? And it's similar to what um, Bartok was doing or Dvorak was doing in Hungary and in Prague. He was trying to create an Irish national music. And so he was doing these very sophisticated orchestrations. But uh, like the 12 8 you know, so you have, you have it in 9 8, you have it in 12 8, you know, and. Uh, uh, the same tune. On a first listen, we thought, oh, this sounds like pub music. And, you know, I said, how's that different than pub music? And it was like the needle scratched on the record. It was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let me get something straight. I wanted nothing to do with pub music. 
And it took me a while to understand that this was very much a reaction against traditional Irish music. It was against his parents' generation of music. He wanted to make something new out of the old elements. Almost reminds me of listening to stories about the Grateful Dead composing together. Patty had a framework. This is what, you know, much like Jerry or Phil would have a framework, and this is how we start to think about it, but then everybody pitches in their parts and they build together. I think that's a lot of what happened in the studio with a lot of Patty's orchestrations. Patty was, he was the life of the party. He was, he could lead a dance. So there are jigs, there are reels, there are airs, these Irish um, dance forms. So he would have these kind of set pieces that are more orchestral, but then he gets right into a reel where the entire hall is up and dancing. So it was this great mix of high music and low music. So it's all the chieftains, but it was really Patty as the, the orchestra leader, as the Duke Ellington of, of that. Really everything about this is designed to honor the life and legacy and music of Patty and the way that he touched our lives. Hawk and Pete got to go to Ireland, I would, they, and they did it on such short notice. They dropped everything and ran to Ireland as soon as Patty said, come on over. He spent an incredible amount of time with us six weeks before he passed away. Honestly, I was worried about the prospect of traveling and I was the voice saying, you know, maybe we should hold off and, you know, wait until the pandemic um, dies down. And, and Hawk was adamant. He said, no, we got to take up our opportunities when they come. This is important. We got to go do this now. He said, come, we're going to go. One of the main reasons for visiting with him was because we had some open questions, particularly about the more improvisational aspects of the performance. And, you know, it was prescient. If they hadn't gone out, we would have missed the chance. And, and it, it, it was such a, a huge gift that all around that they were able to go out there, sit down with Patty, play this music for him. Trying to parse through, oh, is, this a, is this a reel? Is this a slow? What's, what's, what is this? Which reel is this? And spend days immersed in in recollecting the story that these tapes and getting his firsthand observations and recording it. It was great. I mean, it's one of the most fun experiences to sit in the room with these the two pillars of Irish music, uh, Brian Masterson and Brian Masterson's home, home studio. You know, he's recorded everybody, you know, Chieftains to, you know, working with U2 to, you know, Willie Nelson and uh, was Willie Nelson brought Chris Christopherson down when they're playing in Belfast. Uh, to record a track that was on one of the Chieftain's collaborations. I mean, he's worked with everybody under the sun. It was just an honor to be in his, in his home. Uh, and then with Patty, of course, a living legend. We have not only did we get the opportunity to get all of this information from Patty and to give him the gift of immersing him in this music. So, I mean, th those were those were the most fun moments. And there's a, I think we posted on Facebook a, one, a picture of us sort of in the middle of conversation, you know, we're all sort of like, hmm, what could this be? It was great fun. And it was a lot of laughter, uh, a lot of joy. Patty was so entertained by the decisions that he and his bandmates made on the fly, you know, almost 50 years ago. We're also able to include a bit of that in the release. So on one of the CDs is some stuff from their interviews. As I was running over Kilgara Mountains. Down the mountains. I mess with nothing in. <laughs> <laughs> and the was out. And, and, 
He was very much involved in this project. He had been thrilled with this project, you know, from the very beginning. It's really important to us that we honor and try to elevate the legacy of the musicians embodied in these recordings. This is our chance to tell a part of the story of the Chieftains, which was an amazing band that spanned decades and decades and did so many different things in, in terms of all the different types of music that they touched on and combined into their approach. It's incumbent on us to really try to frame these shows as completely as we can. So when you talk about impact of music, for those who are open to different kinds of music, this is as vital and important as any other that we exalt. I don't want to say that Irish traditional music is like rock and roll, but <laughs> there it is. <laughs> but it's got some stars there. Right. Jerry ultimately is a walking encyclopedia of music. And, you know, it's easy to say Americana in particular, yes. But he also has a very good sense of world music and its influences on the music that he loves to play. So the Chieftains first came onto Jerry's radar through Chesley Milliken, who was Sam Cutler's buddy. Now, Chesley's a, an Irishman who had been in circles with Patty in Dublin and was a vice president of Epic Records in Europe. But Sam Cutler, when he was managing the Grateful Dead, after having managed the Rolling Stones until Altamont, had formed out-of-town tours as a band tour management company. He brought Chesley over to help him run that. Chesley and Jerry got along very well. And Chesley said, hey, this Irish band is in town. I know these guys. Check out their record and played some chieftains for them. And Jerry loved it. And that's where the idea came up to have him on uh, you know, Big Daddy Tom Donahue's show and play live. This is about a week before the recordings that became the Olden in the Way album. Going out to Oakland uh, to do that radio show, uh, Big Tom Donahue. Was, yeah. And to get to the radio show, Jerry sent the limo to their hotel to pick them up, the stretch limo. I was telling Hawks here about the stretch limo. It was the first time the Chieftains had been in a stretch limo as musicians in this world. And there's a photograph, I was trying to think about that this morning, and I'm wondering, does one of the guys have it? He talked about it a lot, practically 50 years later, you know, he would just light up about it. I think Deborah Coons Garcia heard Patty talking about the KSAN, Big Daddy, Tom Donahue radio show, Heard Patty talking about it on the radio and how he wished he had a copy of it. This is KSAN in San Francisco, Tom Donahue, and lots of other people tonight. Lots of friends until midnight. And she shows up at a Chieftain's concert with a copy of it at some point, again, uh, after Jerry died. Because he had a connection with Jerry Garcia, it was that connection that really made him champion this project early on. It goes back to Chieftain's played their first tour in the U.S. Jerry invites them onto a radio show. And that's where the interview took place with Jerry talking to me. Okay, let's it's our main it. problem too. Yeah. I mean, no, you know, very, very lucky we get uh, good sound balance at a concert. Right. Asking me all about the, the music and yeah. the tunes. Yeah. Yes. You know, suit our sounds. And people don't listening think it's, you know, um, 
that's great, but we're not happy. So they, they are right. happier. Yeah. Get a proper balance. And so that's where that relationship started. But Jerry heard right away, you know, the connection to American bluegrass. And he talks about the ornaments and the fiddle and how the fiddle is the, really the bridge between, you know, Irish traditional music and bluegrass music. Except for the fiddle, all the instruments in bluegrass are different than Irish traditional music. Yet there's this, you can hear it, the connection through the fiddle. You know, the banjo replaces the pipes in some ways. Is it mostly uh, an instrumental music or is it sometimes a vocal music? It's, yeah. it's the vocal aspect is, is, is certainly as important as the instrumental aspect. Uh, the, 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 the nature of the songs is like what uh, the people who who were uh, the fathers of uh, country and West American music. Mm -hmm. That's what they grew up singing. And so part of what you know, we're telling here is that story. We're also telling the uh, bluegrass story that uh, Irish traditional music is the progenitor of American bluegrass in a lot of ways. The connection is Irish immigration. So it's the Irish immigrants, the Scotch immigrants, they come to the Appalachian Mountains and they, of course, bring their music with them. They're definitely related and Jerry knew that and that's why he staged this concert uh, and this perfect parent. The traditional songs, that sort of thing, the vocal styles are similar, the ornaments are similar. Just like you can hear it most closely instrumentally in the, the fiddles I think probably more than anything else, the, the ornaments, the slides, the, 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 the way the melodies are constructed. How is that even possible? Because if you listen to Irish traditional music, they're playing with ancient instruments. They're playing with a war drum. They're playing with Uian pipes. The only common instrument is the fiddle. So we call it Ricky Skaggs to get the story because Ricky Skaggs is an absolute bluegrass master, but he's played with Hattie before. And Ricky Skaggs said, well, there's actually a fairly simple answer, which is bluegrass is named for Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys. There is a, um, a first bluegrass band in a sense. And Bill Monroe was listening to his Uncle Penn, who was a Scotch immigrant. And Uncle Penn played the fiddle. And so, you know, Bill Monroe's vision for what does bluegrass sound like has fiddle, has banjo, which was a slave instrument. You know, it has the instruments we recognize as American bluegrass. And um, once you have the fiddle as that lead voice, it crowds out the room for some other voices. It's too bad that the, uh, well, the music itself sustained and carried over that some of the instrumentation did not. I, I'd like to hear pipes. So if you go back to that Tom Donahue radio show where Tom's listening, you can hear Tom's a little skeptical at first about the bluegrass music. And then he listens and he goes, you know, those pipes are great. Why aren't there more pipes around? I like to listen to pipes. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and I'm sorry there isn't more of it... Uh, well, you know, in our contemporary music, right? It's entirely possible that instruments like that will make a comeback when it when it gets possible. I mean, not a comeback, but we'll we'll start to find modern, more modern voices when the technical problems of amplifying very quiet instruments. It's like a harpsichord or any of the quiet older instruments, acoustic instruments, mm -hmm. is a big problem to get them loud today to play to large crowds, that sort of thing. But yeah. eventually, that'll be worked out probably. Ricky Skaggs said it great about how there's a joy that goes along with this sound. And some of it is because it's so kinetic. Some of it is because it's grounded in dance music. It's about people getting up and moving. One of the questions that we asked Patty was, what would you tell your grandchildren? Uh, his grandchildren are in the US. 
what would you explain to your grandchildren about your music and and the lasting impact of your music the way that you compose or create your music the things that you should listen to when you yeah. when you hear it for the first time you know in the pandemic he wanted to see his family and spend time with his family and was sort of cut off in a way and so I asked him you know what would you tell your grandchildren about your music and what they should know about your music and the first thing he said was well first and foremost i would tell them it's a dance music to get up and move feel it yeah on a simplified form perhaps you know to get into the rhythms and, uh, and maybe to get them up um, to get them up um, dancing and uh, i think an important thing is the fact that it's dance music which is uh something that we might, might not have made clear but that has a lot to yeah. do with it too and the, the various different rhythmic feelings all represent various kinds of traditional dances is a really a complete cultural picture happening do you remember oh, yeah. what Jerry asked you, like what you guys discussed? And Oh, yeah, he was, look, why did you do this and why did you do that? There was all that going on, you know. And then I started to explain the fox hunt, you know what I mean? Part of the reason this is called the fox hunt is because Jerry was fascinated with the song The Fox Hunt and the way that it told a narrative through several movements. There's a piece of music we put together a couple of years ago called The Fox Hunt. And... Uh, in four movements. <coughs> Good man, Paddy, um, here we go. Starts off with the fiddle telling the story, you're getting together, lots of brandy and all that sort of Tommy Rogers. Once very popular sport in Ireland, sort of died out now. So um, maybe it's just as well. It started up this way, you know, with the, the screeching of the, you know, and you're oh, playing yes, from yes, it. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, then you hear Sean Keane taking up the more faster rhythm, which means the... Uh, which means the uh, hunt's moving off down the, the road. Uh, tracking the fox hunt from the carousing at the lodge to the hounds scenting the fox to the chase to the eventual demise of the fox to the return to the lodge for more drinking and debauchery. When you hear the uh, boron coming in, that means they've sent to the fox and uh, there's a terrible hullabaloo altogether. Uh, and an old piping thing, old piping uh, tradition was they used to play the fox chase it's a different thing altogether. Uh, but the fox usually died on the high A, so when you hear it, that means he's got a bit of tea. And then the poor old fox got killed on the high A, and then, you know. That's the third piece, then it runs into a rhythm from 9-8 into 4-4, believe it or not, they're changing rhythm. That worked. Work that out now, get your computer out for that one. It's a slip jig rhythm into the reel, and... That means they're cantering off home over the hill, back to lots more brandy and what have you, you know? Uh, all of that is depicted in instrumentation and orchestration, and Jerry loved that. And in 73, they spent a lot of time talking about that song. Jerry was fascinated by that, you And so after that radio interview, Jerry sat down with them and said, hey, We'd love you guys to come and play with my bluegrass band. We've got these shows coming up. Will you come and open for us? There's always been this connection, but we weren't aware of it. We weren't aware of how, how long it extended and how much mutual appreciation there was. But um, believe me when I tell you, Patty just glowed about it. There's that. And Jerry and Patty maintained contact for years. You know, they weren't you know, best buddies or anything like that, but there was a mutual respect there even to the point where Patty happened to be in New York uh, and for dead shows in the 90s and uh, went backstage and he was welcomed. I think he was invited to play, but he didn't. He said, there's no way I was going to play. 
uh, <laughs> you know, at Madison Square Garden with the Grateful Dead. But can you imagine? This first show, the October show, was in fact the Chieftains at the boarding house opening for Old Man the Way. If you look at this album, it's like Jerry had a vision. Jerry said, I'm going to put my musical great grandparents up on the stage with me. They're going to open, then Olden in the Way plays. And so you've got the, the progenitor, and then you've got the American version of the idiom. But uh, one thing I've noticed is it's a, a kind of music that probably has uh, influenced a lot of contemporary groups. I mean, Oh, yeah, it's, it's influenced a lot of contemporary music, particularly country and Western music, and, uh, and more particularly bluegrass music, which is the music, which is my... The thing I think that got me interested into it was from uh, hearing uh, country and western fiddlers playing uh, traditional Irish tunes, and that's that's really where the music comes from. And the Chieftains were already famous in Ireland. They were well known in the UK. They had already recorded an album with Paul McCartney's brother. They had recorded at Apple. They had these incredible relationships. They partied with Mick Jagger. But this was the first time in the U.S. on tour, and Jerry Garcia. U.S. rock star gets them a limo. I was telling Hawks here about the stretch limo. We're getting into the stretch <laughs> and uh, going out to Oakland uh, to do that radio show. Uh, Big Tom Donahue was it? Yeah. yeah. It was the first sort of acknowledgement from a U.S. rock star that, yeah, you guys are rock stars. You know, you think of Elvis like you know, brand new Cadillac. This is Jerry's nod to the rock star quality of Patty Maloney and the Chieftains. Uh, we're playing with, um, on the same stage of Old and in the way, too. <laughs> that was so funny. Imagine being in the audience at, at this show. You, you get to see the Chieftains you know, on their first U.S. tour, followed by Old and in the way, and it's all with this exquisite sound. You get a tremendous audio experience first and foremost. The sound quality, particularly on the October 1st, 1973 tapes, they're fantastic. This is every bit as good as Olden in the Way, and Olden in the Way was groundbreaking for its sound quality for a live concert recording. The richness and depth of the sound on that October 1st recording is just stunning. And when you consider that there are seven instruments or seven musicians on the stage playing together, the three-dimensional aspects, the sonic sort of ecosystem of it, uh, the environment that's created, particularly under the headset, adds a richness and depth. That pairing is just mind-blowing. You think about it when, when you listen to it under the headset, you start with this crisp layer of high-quality sound and all the instruments distinct, and you can hear where they're sitting, and you can hear the way the, the different instruments interweave their melodies very distinctly. And from there, you sort of zoom down, and you can hear their banter and their conversation and their jokes to one another, you know, if you listen carefully, uh, mostly at Patty's expense. And then if you drill down to an even, uh, you know, an even deeper level, you can hear them move in their seats. You know, I, I kept describing it as sort of like the Tweety scritch scratch of clothing. Like, that's how clear it is. It takes me back to like Doc Watson, where you can hear the tick of the pick on the strings, and you can hear him, if you listen really closely, you can hear his rubber-soled shoe very gently keeping time. I mean, these are, it's astonishingly clear. It is a natural trilogy uh, when you put it next to Doc Watson at the boarding house, holding in the way at the boarding house, and now you have the Chieftains at the boarding house. I mean, Doc Watson, I had great admiration for you, you know what I mean? 
Like, I remember, God, he played a tune at 40 miles an hour. Where the band was in 73, in 73, they're underdogs. This is their first time playing a tour in the U.S. These guys aren't even full-time musicians yet. So literally after the show you hear in 73, they go back to jobs as telephone linemen, post office workers. I think Patty was finally full-time, but he worked in a building supply business. So they're not even full-time musicians. And then you have the pairing of the boarding house sound quality in that venue versus the later on in the Great American Music Hall, which is a, a bit bigger venue. By the time they come back, just a few years later, they've hit. They're now world-renowned. So when they come back shortly beforehand, Melody Maker, it's you know the equivalent of Rolling Stone in England, does a reader's poll, who's the most popular band of the year. And the Chieftains, my God, they beat out the Rolling Stones and Zeppelin that year. Because of their increased stature, they're playing in a bigger hall, it sounds different. So that's what we get to hear when they come back around. So they're playing a more spacious venue uh, with different um, obstacles and sound reflections that the sound man had to take into account. When we first listened to these tapes, that was one of the things that Hawk brought up right away. Why do these sound so different? <laughs> My God, they sound a lot different. And it's like, oh, it's because they're in different places. They're playing uh, to a crowd has heard their albums before. There's just a palpable difference in how the audience reacts and um, how confident the band is. And it's wonderful from our perspective because it gives you a really good illustration of the, you know, here's Bear's skills at capturing the venue. What was Bear doing differently? Did he mic differently? Did he use different equipment? It sounds, it's the same band, probably even the same microphones, different venues, totally different sound. And there we actually had an eyewitness with a tremendous memory who could tell us exactly how Bear mic'd the stage. We talked to Lee Brinkman, who was, he ran house sound at the Great American Music Hall. And uh, he remembered the equipment that he brought and the mics that he used. He had this spectacular memory and he described exactly what Bear did. And as it turns out, Bear mic'd both places in almost the same way. And so we get this kind of controlled experiment. His sonic journals were first and foremost, his working diary of, of his of his work as a sound man, but he did recognize that he had a skill set to capture music. And so he made some purpose recordings that were not when he was mixing sound. Um, not a ton of them, but uh, you know, it was definitely something. So when he went out to set up a stage and record it, when he wasn't mixing his sound, it was quite purposeful. And in order to be there in time and set up, you know, it definitely was pre-planned. Bear <laughs> was not, was not a spur of the pants, uh, spur of the moment. He might be seat of the pants, but he was not a spur of the moment sort of uh, get things together and go. So yeah, he definitely was focused on capturing the show when he went to do it. You say, is there such thing as a sonic journal where the goal of the sonic journal is to say, what did that all sound like? on that night. And because he mic'd it in the same way with very similar equipment, what you hear when you compare 73 and um, 75 is the difference, it's the sound of those two different halls. 
which is mind-boggling. The thing about Bear's tapes in that how he might not just to capture the music, but to capture the environment, the ambiance, the sound of the space that the music was happening in. And that for him, Sonic Journals weren't just recordings of a band, they were recordings of an experience that that he was just had figured out, especially at this period, he'd figured out how, which mics, where to put them, and how they combined to create this sonic landscape that you could use to recapitulate the space that the music was created in. Meyer Sound has some amazing technologies um, these days where, you know, they can actually go and sample spaces and recreate the acoustic characteristics of different venues with their constellation system <laughs> you know, so so you can you can go into their what uh, constellation equipped room and dial up different venues and it will make the room sound you know resonantly like all these different venues it's really nice to be able to listen to the two different shows side by side and, and appreciate that they do sound very distinctively different and understand why and all of it, you know, got into the, the liner notes. Bear had the connection with the Chieftains in 73. He came for the second night and recorded it in 76. And then uh, there's a lovely story about uh, taking various members of the Chieftains out into the Redwood Forest for a hike uh, while they had some downtime. So there was a very nice historical connection between Bear and the Chieftains. We call the series Bear Sonic Journals because Bear called his tapes Sonic Journals. They were his working to a journal of what did it sound like to be in the room that night. Well, to us now, we want the releases to be a sonic journal, but there's more than just the sound. There's a whole, the context that performance happened in that night. What would it have been like to be in the room? What did the fans know at that point? What did the band know? Part of what we're trying to do with the whole sort of archiving is telling the story, visually telling it in our narrative, we get better and better at it with each release. Telling the story and trying to tell the story through original research, firsthand accounts, flying to Dublin, meeting with Patty. And so there's more than just the sound, there's the photography, there's um, interviews, oral histories, new original art that gives you a sense of the feeling of what it would be like. And to us all of that together, makes a sonic journal makes a bear sonic journal some cds don't have any booklets at all <laughs> i don't think that we set out to write 40 page booklets i think that we follow the story wherever the story leads us and if there's a thread to pull on that intrigues us we're going to pull on that thread and we're going to go as far as we can often the limitations are access more than anything else uh, and where we lack ac access then we pick up the research Given how lengthy the booklets have been on the last several releases and the next one that's coming is going to be just as big. Almost you know, miniature hardcover <laughs> book that we can present these notes in so that they're not this oft overlooked little packet tucked inside the dust cover, but front and center. I'm really thrilled that we have this way of... When we do our research, there are certain narrative threads that really pop out and they interest us, so we pursue them. And then we're like, well, this is really cool. And this is really cool. And this is really cool. And how do we make this all work together? And I think the emphasis is on trying to find more and more firsthand accounts, artist perspectives, 
you know, talking to people who can provide greater historical context. A lot of people don't have CD players anymore, and we realize that, but this is a way to really, you know, hold the whole package in your hands and leaf through the pages. And really, it's an important companion to the music. I think if you just get the digital and don't have the liner notes, don't have that art, don't have all of these discussions, you know, it's you really lose. And it's hard because their digital is so convenient. Digital is it's instant gratification. You say, Oh, I want this, you got it. But you know, having that and we've got the vinyl format too, which is enormous, and you've got the the billfold and all that. But you know, being able to hold it in your hands and flip through the pages and read this makes the experience of this recording so much richer and really helps you appreciate the magic that's in it. cover of the Chieftains album has, of course, the Owsley 13-point lightning bolt uh, burnt into the tree in the center. The painting that we got for this cover is just beautiful. There are magic mushrooms embedded throughout the painting, if you look very closely. It's this Irish artist named Connor Campbell. These guys that are on a fox hunt, by the way, are obviously never going to catch the fox. Who is, it paints this wonderful, almost pointless, stained glass style that just is so evocative and creates such a visual entry into the world of the fox hunt. Uh, in fact, they didn't even bring hunting implements with them. Instead of spears and arrows, they brought their instruments and a glass of wine. And the whole Celtic background. We try to throw a lot of ourselves and our sense of humor and, you know, the in our art direction and, and it's all about the little details. It frankly just enormously inspirational for us as far as when we started to create this packet and, and to wend our way through the pages, you know, honoring this artwork, you know, which in turn is honoring the music. So for example, on the cover as it stands, there is a, a little thatched roof house here. Uh, and when you open up the gatefold on the vinyl, there's also a big house made of uh, timbers and more of a Tudor style. And that theme of the big house, little house, the music of the pub and the home versus the music of the concert hall and academia is a constant theme uh, throughout. We're really fortunate to be able to showcase such talents. It contains important elements of the story as well. Many of the references in the poster appear again in the, in the text. You know, this time when we were doing the art direction for the original art that we commissioned, you know, a lot of times we'll have a cover done and then we want to put out a poster um, for each uh, Sonic Journal and then we have to expand the square format to a rectangular poster. This time we realized that perhaps a better approach is to start with the poster <laughs> and then pull the cover from that. We commissioned uh, from Connor another three-eyed bear. Now bears have been extinct in Ireland, I think for 2,500 years or something, but uh, we brought back a, uh, a ghost bear to wander the uh, mythical fields of Ireland, uh, forests of Ireland. So Connor made this beautiful landscape painting that that has the extensive fox hunt and background, and then the cover is a an excerpted section, but the elements 
from the poster um, are featured as you go through the story in the in the liner notes. Um, all the other creatures emerge, but everything is featured on this really beautiful poster that we will be putting up on the website. And then we have a full page three-eyed bear, which of course is a, a reference to Bob Thomas's famous three-eyed bear on the back of Bear's Choice. One of Bear's best friends was uh, Bob Thomas, who was an amazing artist who uh, every deadhead is familiar with his work because he's the man who created the Steal Your Face logo, as my dad called it, the Skull and Lightning Bolts logo from Bear's concept, but it was Bob's uh, art. And also the Dancing Bear, the History of the Grateful Dead Volume 1, the Live Dead cover, that's Bob Thomas. Bear met him back in the 50s, but Bob was also a musician and a craftsman. He played bagpipes and he built the bagpipes that he played. And so Bear had a lot of familiarity with the Renaissance era. We can't leave unmentioned the lettering on the cover and throughout the booklet, Michael Wickersham of Alembic had a uh, did a wonderful job. She uh, she's she's quite a skilled uh, calligrapher. You know, we were struggling with font choices. It is challenging to evoke the Celtic feeling without sometimes veering uh, into more pop arty feelings. And we really wanted this to bring you back to that Book of Kells hand lettered illuminated manuscript sort of feel. You know, she did a wonderful job giving us hand lettering for various uh, section uh, headings. And if you look at the front, even our Barisonic journals and presented by the Owsley Stanley Foundation is, is hand lettered. And the title, The Fox Hunt, she did a, a wonderful job graphically. And again, it goes back to Bob Thomas, who, who did these wonderful psychedelic Renaissance feel to all of his work, but evoking that um, almost ribbon-like lettering that, again, you can see on the Live Dead album. At Alembic, they have the largest collection of Bob Thomas art. Susan was a student of Bob Thomas's art. I love the connection and being able to pull a little bit of Bob Thomas's spirit into this because I know he would have loved this project. And I think it all goes back to the notion that, you know, we have an audience that continues to grow, but it was initially, you know, deadheads that loved Owsley, deadheads that know about Owsley and his contribution to the band, and then some audiophiles that understood his contribution to, to sound, sound engineering. Sometimes those groups don't have the broadest musical tastes. And Owsley had incredibly broad musical tastes. The wonderful thing about populating this bus uh, is that every stop it comes to with each release, we get new people on the bus. And part of it is they're willing to go on the journey with us. And we want to give them as much information to make that journey as interesting as possible. But we also have people who have, were attracted to the bus because of something that they knew to music that they might not have experienced. So we studied it, we dug it, and we tried to convey just how much we learned and loved about this music. And because they 
have subscribed to our particular brand of madness, they are willing to give it a chance. We put ourselves in the shoes of every one of our listeners who are wherever they come from, whether they're deadheads, whether they're audiophiles. Like, okay, you know, something I would never say, I want to listen to this, but I want to listen to this because I don't know what it is, but they trust us to give them something worth listening to. And, you know, hopefully we're doing our job of honoring that. (laughs) And I think we'll continue to follow the story wherever it takes us, whether it's eight pages or 50. So that's something that we can use to bring this music to ears that wouldn't otherwise experience it. It's a wonderful community that we have. They really appreciate what we do. You know, talk about how we don't, we aren't, we don't receive any remuneration, but we receive incredible rewards just in terms of positive feedback. Hawk and Pete, the amount of research that these guys do is staggering. You're seeing a little snippet of everything that's been dug up and picked through and distilled down to give you the liner notes. I think one of the most interesting things about the composition of the bus that that Owsley has uh, set in motion here uh, is best reflected, and Pete pointed out there was a Reddit post about Owsley Stanley Foundation, and there are about 14 or 15 comments. And every one of them pointed to a different uh, Bear Sonic Journal as their favorite. And then somebody at the end of the thread says, what's amazing here is that everybody has a different favorite. And that's, you know, that's exactly what we hoped in our wildest dreams to be able to accomplish is to, to create a series where we focus on the diverse voices that Owsley recorded. It's the matrix that it's all embedded in. It's you're only getting a little piece if you're only listening to one element. And, and you know, Bear actually managed to get a slice through all of the different layers. It's this other arc of all of these different types of music, all of these different idioms and voices and characters. That's an essential part of the Owsley Stanley Foundation and, and Bear's tapes. It's part of how we really put our our heart and souls into these. Yeah, CD, vinyl, they can all be purchased on our website, owsleystanleyfoundation.org, and of course anywhere fine music is purchased. It'll be on all the usual outlets and it should appear in independent record stores as well. Yeah, come in, grab a pint, and mind the dresser. <laughs>